Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What is happening, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 115 of Rizzo cast. I'm Steven Risotto, and today we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, Manny Parra played in uh, parts of eight seasons at the big league level with the Brewers and Reds and uh, in parts of 18 or 19 or whatever it was somewhere around that range professionally. So he's been around a while and he's newly retired, played his last pro year in 2021 in the Mexican League. Manny joins the show. Uh, how you doing? Welcome. I'm doing well. How are you, man? I'm doing well, man. It's it, there's a big heat wave here in the Bay Area. So enjoying the yeah. sun, enjoying the uh, well, not really enjoying it, but bearing with it. And I know you're what in Arizona. The- so, I mean, you get this a lot. Yeah. What's the heat wave there? Well, you're going to hate me for this today. It's uh, today in the Bay Area. It's actually like 75. But hold on, because the last few days it was, you know, closing in on 100, 101 here at the coast side. So really pretty warm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm from Sacramento, so I kind of know, and I know Sacramento's been getting hotter than us here in Phoenix. So, yeah, yeah, not used to that there in the Bay Area. Usually, you can go to the Bay Area in the summertime, and it feels like fall or something. Yeah, mid 60s. That's what the Bay Area in the summertime is kind of always like. But we're hanging in there. We're doing uh, doing our best to uh, to hydrate and do all that fun stuff. But Arizona, I know, is a complete different animal. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's great to talk to you, uh, today. I know the big story that I saw when I woke up today was that, uh, major league baseball is going to implement the pitch clock. So the rules committee, they got together, I guess, and they decided that the pitch clock is going to be the next big thing. They want to improve uh, the game 15 second pitch clock, uh, I guess, starting off here, what do you think about this idea? Do you think this is going to be a, a positive uh, development in, in major league baseball? Well, it's actually been going on for a while at the lower levels and and it's been tested all over the place. So um, I've been, I've experienced it. Um, I I think it's a good thing to a certain extent. Um, The problem that I see is that there's a limit to how many times you can throw over and all that type of stuff. So what this is going to do is you're going to see teams learning to gamify that a little bit and they're going to start to take advantage of that position and know that, hey, if I can get him to throw over here a couple, I'm going to lead off as far as I can one-way lead where I'm going back no matter what. And uh, I'm going to lead off as far as I can, see if I can get him to throw over here a couple times, and he's not going to be able to throw over anymore. So they're, Or they're going to wait until the pitch clock runs down to a certain point, and then they're going to take off. So they're going to use it to the advantage of the base runners, which Major League Baseball wants to do because they're trying to create an offensive game, which is just fake. Why are we trying to manipulate the game and not allow it be what it's always been? Because people today – want to control everything and, and make it theirs. They need, everybody needs to make it theirs instead of just um, learning to kind of make small sandpaper adjustments. I just feel like the game is kind of like becoming something I don't know. But that aside, I do think it can be seen as a good thing because there are pitchers who are rain delays out there. And that would drive me crazy even as, a, as somebody in the dugout watching the game. Is 15 seconds a little bit like not enough time maybe? Cause I know that I, I read a tweet today from someone who played professionally. I don't know if you've seen him, Eric Sim, who uh, is kind of a, a social media mogul now. 
uh, but he played professional. And he said that, you know, usually pitchers might need some time to recover in between pitches and maybe 15 seconds, maybe you see some more arm injuries. Do you think that maybe has a, you know, will play a part in this? Um, I think if, if you can't, in an extended inning, sure, it could. But I think you need to get in better shape if you can't make a pitch every 15 seconds. Now, it's going to go quick. I know the pitch clock I was working with was 20 seconds. So that's a difference. Five seconds is a big difference there. What's going to be interesting is seeing if the hitters are playing this as well. I I think there's going to be a lot of bumps along the road. And I think there's going to be a lot of adjustments that are going to need to be made. Maybe they've already, they feel like they've already ironed that out at the minor league level, but we've seen it with the hitters being able to step out of the box. You know, that was supposed to be something that was put in six, seven years ago. And here today, it's still not something that's enforced. So um, it, it's really going to come down to how much the umpires are going to put this stuff into uh, play. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the other thing, the other part of that, the other big news that came out is the, uh, the shift, the banning of the shift. I think we saw this coming. Uh, all infielders now have to stay on the dirt and uh, they have to stay on their respective side of second base. So you can't have any more uh, three players on one side of the infield. Uh, is this a positive adjustment to the game? Because I know this is a very decisive one, much less, much more decisive than the pitch clock. So what do you think about the? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. Uh, I was always, I always dealt with it better when I gave up a hit that was a legit hit versus a hit that was because my defense has shifted and it's ridiculous. It should have been a double play, but here we are shifting. What's funny is I actually played for the manager who started all this at the, at the extreme level in the minor leagues. His name's Frank Kremblis and I had him in Nashville and uh, he was one of the first ones to, to shift every, almost every hitter. And it was an extreme shift. And I remember thinking, okay, I can understand how this will work against certain hitters, but I, I, for some reason there was something there that I didn't like, you know, I understand it's part of the game and, and sh- strategy, but I'm okay with this one. I'm, I'm definitely okay with it. I think when I, whenever I think of the shifts, I think of a few years ago, watching Johnny Cueto with the giants, I think they were shifting on uh, one of the big, left it was might have been Cody Bellinger they were shifting uh, and they had the the three guys on the right side of second base and Johnny Cueto's over there throwing two seamers down and away and it's like well what do you expect to happen you know Cody Bellinger's just going to shoot that right past the wide open space on the third base side so that was a little interesting and 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 one other thing I guess one in favor of uh, banning the shift people would say well we get to see some athletes at second base now it's not a spot where you could throw Max Muncie at second base anymore you got to actually have some some uh some athleticism there and uh you know we're gonna see some some infielders die for balls now i think that's a positive development yeah i guess i haven't really seen that type of second baseman is that something that's been going on yeah they've i mean they've like uh mike moustakis has played some second base in years past and max muncie's been there and the giants have a few guys that have played second base that are usually you know should be designated hitters and on other teams, but yeah, definitely. I think some more athletes are going to be at second base. Yeah, I could see that too. Um, I mean, you're going to need to be able to cover, cover more ground for sure. And um, it's the way the game was meant to be played. I think slight shifts here and there. Uh, is there any rule how far the guy can shift over? Cause I, I haven't read this in depth or anything like that. I think that there's a little bit, you can't pass second base, but there's like a, like an angle to where you can't, so you can't go, 
I'm not sure the exact angle that it is, but you can't, I, I think it's like five feet next to second base or behind second base. I got to look to see what it is, but I also think you can't play behind the bag anymore. Like most shortstops tend to do. So, okay. But they, he can probably shift a little bit to a, a second baseman, a little bit to his left to cover that hole. Mm-hmm. If the see, so what's going on here when we talk about like Cueto, you brought it up earlier, how he's throwing two seamers down and away. The reason that they do that, and I used to find this interesting too. Um, why are we doing that? Because even on in their grat, like, so you have the coaches on the bench, and in my time, it was on paper. It sounds like it was so long ago, but it wasn't. Uh, I don't know. I think now it's probably on iPads or something. But they have this uh, spread chart uh, where where the guys are uh, hitting the ball, and when they hit the ball on the ground, there's there's say is a left-handed hitter, he always hits the ball on the ground from like say second base over or shortstop over to the right side. He never hits the ball. Very rarely will he hit it to the left side of shortstop on the ground. Now, when they hit it in the air, they might hit it to left field. It's weird how hitters are like that, but there's definitely a correlation with the way these hitters hit ground balls versus fly balls. Um, So they say, hey, look, if we can keep keep a guy like Bellinger hitting the ball on the ground, and we can throw him two seams down and away, which is what he maybe hits the weakest out of all the pitches. They're willing to take that risk, right? They're like, okay, a single's better than a double or a homer. That might be their thought process there. But again, I just like having a guy. I like knowing that I can make my pitch and he's going to hit a ground ball to third base. I have somebody there. Or I can trust my shortstop in third base to cover that hole. If the guy hits it so hard it gets through the infield, I gave up a hit. That's part of the game, you know? Um, so I think maybe maybe it'll also stop the coaches from overthinking a little too much, you know, because there's so much of that going on. We'll see. Yeah, we'll definitely see how it works. Do you think players – well, I mean, I'm sure you know for sure. Do players talk about this kind of stuff together? You know, like is there a certain conversation that goes on in the clubhouse regarding certain things that – like maybe the league office does or decisions that they've made for sure. Uh, guys discuss what they like and they don't like, and you, you will hear, uh, two, two guys that might debate this, right? Like somebody who's really has great command, uh, might really like the shift because they're able to control where the hitter is hitting the ball better. Um, versus somebody who's a stuff guy and, and they kind of just, trust their stuff and, and the hitter's going to hit the ball where it may type of thing. Um, we're all trying, no matter what, at the big league level, you're trying to command the ball to a certain extent, but there's certain guys who are crafty. Let's say Kyle Hendricks uh, versus, you know, somebody else out there. Um, so um, I think, where's I going with that? Um Oh yeah. So we, we discuss it and you'll hear the debate. I would say most guys are probably more on my, where I stand with it. At least the guys I talked to, they were always more on my side with it where, Hey, I would rather give up a hit work with a guy um, playing where he's supposed to be versus the shift, you know? Uh, But again, I probably was talking to the older players. No doubt. Yeah. So let's hop into your career a little bit. Uh, growing up, I know we mentioned uh, off air that uh, you grew up in the Sacramento, I guess, slash Elk Grove area. And I guess even before I get into that, not Elk, I, not Elk Grove, not Elk Grove. Okay. Yeah. Just the uh, Sacramento Roseville, area. Roseville, uh, kind of like Citrus Heights area. 
Over yeah, there. I, yeah. Before I uh, get into what I was about to ask, uh, have you seen the amount of guys that make it to the big leagues from that area? I mean, it's absurd the amount of guys you see that are from that area nowadays. I've, I've been noticing more of it lately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The best one so far uh, recently is probably Webb, right? Yeah, Rockland from Rockland, yeah. uh, California. That's right. Funny story there. I uh, spoke to his class when he was in elementary school. Cause my stepmom was his, uh, was a teacher at his school. So she asked me to come in and speak to his class or something like that. And crazy, man. So was Logan, like, did you know who he was at that point or did you find out later on or did somebody, it was later on my stepmom. She had told me, Hey, there was a kid who you ended up, uh, you, you spoke to his class a long time ago and man, he's really good. Like he, he's the giants drafted him, all this stuff. I was like, really? I ended up meeting him in 2018 when I was with the giants. And he was uh, recovering from Tommy John surgery. But, um, you know, I'm always rooting for a guy from my area. Yeah, Rockland, California, high school high school quarterback, too. Logan Webb was the real deal over there in, in Rockland. Were you a Giants or an A's guy growing up? Because I know Webb, for example, was an A's fan growing up. But I know in that area, it could be a little here nor there. So Giants yeah, or A's? I was a Giants. But I was still an A's fan, too, but not like. It, for me, it was Giants. I mean, the, my heart was with the Giants. The the It was almost like uh, how I am with the Niners. I'm a Niner fan, but I would also pay attention to Oakland, the Raiders. And, uh, you know, but I, if the Raiders lost, it didn't bother me. You know, if the Giants lost and the Niners lost, that bothered me. So definitely a Giants fan growing up. And did you have a favorite guy maybe that you like to watch? Yeah, it started out with Will Clark and then it went to Barry. Um, and then... As I got a little bit older, I ended up going root, like looking more at the pitchers. So you're talking like Randy Johnson admired Greg Maddox and the way he pitched. But I was always more drawn to like a, a Randy Johnson because I wanted to be that dominating type guy. So you Lord were never Clark. you were never the Barry Bonds or Will Clark type presence at the plate. No, no. <laughs> Had to ask. Uh, how did you first start playing baseball and, and what was it that made you kind of fall in love with the game? Because I know everybody kind of has their introduction story to a certain sport. What was it for you about baseball? Well, my dad was a basketball and football player. He played baseball in high school, too, but that was like his third sport. He never talked about it, really. So um, I was kind of pushing those other two directions first. And then it wasn't until I was like eight years old, nine years old, that I started playing. And in my first year, I was awful. and I remember I tried to quit one day. Um, my dad showed up to practice and I wasn't there. And he, so he showed up to my mom's house and was like, where, what are you doing, man? And I was like, I don't want to play anymore. And I got in a lot of trouble. And he said, you never quit anything you start. Um, so I was back out there and I'm so thankful for that because I ended up coming back and playing the fall, fall ball or winter ball. And I had such a good time and I improved so much. And I just remember feeling like, um, that sport was matching what I like to do the best, I, whatever it was. I liked hitting a lot. So, um, hitting was my first, you know, playing the field and hitting. And then my dad kind of always pushed pitching cause I was left-handed. He was like, you know, you gotta, you gotta do this. You gotta try, you know, all this stuff. And it just ended up being something where I, my teammates, the kids I was growing up with, my friends at school, they were mostly baseball players. And that's just kind of how we you know, was. And, and an interesting thing about your story, and this is something that I admire is that you were drafted at a junior college. So you went to American river college. Uh, and I've talked about it on the show before. 
uh, with different players that have also done the same path. Uh, why? I mean, it's a completely underrated path, in my opinion, junior college. Uh, and I always say that if I go to a four-year school and I watch a four-year team play, uh, four-year college play, I could always tell hey, this guy probably went to JUCO. He looks like he went to JUCO, uh, just kind of by the grittiness of them. So why yeah. was why was junior college the right fit for you? Well, luckily I had, well, first of all, <laughs> out of, out of high school, I wasn't good enough to be getting offers at to four-year universities. You know, it just wasn't there. I remember um, toward the end of, so I graduated high school, I went and played Legion or something that summer. And I played for another team. And toward the end of that summer, I think a school from LA, I, I, really unknown school, they actually were willing to give me an opportunity down there. Um, they said they would pay for my books or something like that. And I turned it down and I was talking to Leon Lee, who was Derek Lee's dad. And that's, um, he was my coach of the team I was playing on. And he said, look, man, you, I was young for my grade. I was 17 when I graduated high school. I was always younger. I should have been probably back a year. And he saw that I was improving a lot at that time. And he said, look, the best thing you can do right now is go play. Just make sure you you're going somewhere where you can play. So I, I went to Sac City and I set up in a, a, a little interview over there and they, he was like, Oh, I didn't even know you pitched. I, I know you hit, but, and then, so then I was like, okay, well, they don't really even know who I am. So I'm not going to go there. And he kind of told me, don't go there anyway. He said, you're going to go there and then you'll sit and you won't get any playing time. So the most important thing you can do is get the reps right now. So um, I went to American river. Um, I mean, there was no, I wasn't like giving, given anything. I was working my butt off just to be on that team. And uh, it was just, that was like the best opportunity there was. And now, like you had said, knowing what I know now, I don't really understand why you wouldn't go to a junior college, no matter how good you are. Why would you go to a four-year school unless you were like, no, I, I want to get three years of, of college in or four years of college in no matter what. If your goal is to go play professionally and that's your dream, there is no, there makes no sense to me to go to a four-year. You can go to a good junior college program. You can sign after your first or second year. It doesn't matter. Like you have all the leverage in the world. That's the reason why they got rid of the draft and follow, mm -hmm. you know, it's because you have all the leverage. They didn't, baseball didn't like that. So um, I agree with you hundred percent. That's a very underrated route to go guys that go there tend to kind of have a chip on their shoulder because they weren't, they didn't get to go to the university, you know, um, they weren't recruited for whatever reason. Maybe, maybe a guy went to a university uh, four year and, you know, they didn't have their grades and then they got pushed back to the JUCO route. So there's also that there's, there's grittiness when it comes to junior college for sure. And, and I agree with you hundred percent that you can kind of, I think it was called like Johnny hustle, you know, uh, JUCO, type of guy so you always had to work hard run hard type of thing and most of all you're going to play because at some of the four-year schools you know you're you're not playing your freshman and sophomore year so you're going to be playing at a junior college I mean if you if you put in the work and uh you know I can't tell you how many you know people I've come across that in high school they're saying yeah I'm going to go play at Vanderbilt or I'm going to go play at uh all these you know coastal Carolina whatever these schools and all of a sudden, you know, they, they find themselves at a junior college and they're putting up numbers and, you know, it's kind of hitting them like, Hey, maybe it wasn't realistic for me to go to a big, big school out of high school, but that goes for anything, not just baseball. 
especially if maybe you don't want to know for those listening, if you don't know what you want to do and you're in high school, maybe a junior college isn't such a bad idea. And plus you save money. So, uh, exactly. You save a ton of money, man. You get, you get your general education out of the way for a fraction of the cost. You're getting the opportunity to play. Um, and that, like you said, that's the most important thing is getting the reps. I mean, um, sitting on the bench, watching some older guys play, um, it could really mess with you mentally at a certain point, you know, um, there's so many different things that could play into that. But again, I agree with you hundred percent. And the Brewers took you in the uh, 26th round in the 2001 draft. Uh, after, after American river, did you have any offers, you know, maybe from the four-year schools or was it just, you know what I'm signing and playing pro bowl? No, I did. I, uh, everything kind of changed. So, um, I ended up signing, uh, I got a full scholarship to UCLA. So originally I signed a pretty, it was a, a letter of intent to UCLA, a pretty good scholarship offer. And then as my season went on and things were progressing, they ended up upping it, upping it to the max that they could give me. Um, but I took a recruiting trip to Texas tech, long beach state. Um, some other schools had reached out. Um, but those were kind of the three that I really, I always thought I was going to go to long beach state because my high school catcher went there and I always really respected that program. They were really good at that time too. Um, but when I went to UCLA and took that recruiting trip, it was the mixture of, of, uh, the schooling that you can get. And then the coach, coach Adams at UCLA was known for guys getting to the big leagues, even though they weren't winning in college they had more guys getting to the big leagues and being successful at the big league level. And they felt like there was a reason for that. And the reason for that was um, allowing pitchers to call their own games and the players being more accountable for their own careers, instead of the coaches controlling every little aspect of the game and treating them like kids, they were treated more like adults. So I remember really liking that about UCLA. And so I had signed a letter of intent to go there. Yeah. And I know that Long Beach state, maybe a little after uh, you were drafted and everything. They became really good with Evan Longoria and Troy Tulowitzki was there at one point. And um, there's Weaver. someone else who I'm blanking on the name, but there's another guy that went there too. Uh, who Weaver? I just, yeah, Weaver. Weaver was there too. J- uh, Jared Weaver. Um, who? Did Rondon go there? Which Ron? Which Ron? Uh, Ron? Uh, no, he went to Rice. Okay. okay. Yeah, he went to Rice. So uh, there, there's, there's a few guys that have been. A successful long Bobby Crosby was there. Bobby Crosby, of course, the the shortstop. Yeah. But the guy I'm thinking of that I actually had on his name was um um oh why am I but Marco Estrada went to Long Beach State. So did Marco go there? Marco okay, Estrada. Yeah, I love Marco. He's a good dude. Yeah, he he came on. He's a really yeah really good dude. Um, so then yeah, of course the minor league stuff happens. You, you fight your way to the big leagues and you make your debut on July 20th, 2007 against the childhood team, the giants. And yeah. I, think, I think you pitched to the back end of a loss there in, in Milwaukee. Yeah. What do you remember about that day? I remember I was sitting in the bullpen. It had been my fifth day, um, of not pitching. And I just remember feeling at the point where I was just so anxious to get in the game. It was no longer nervousness. It was like, let's go, let's go. And then, and I saw the score. I'm like, okay, we're down by, I think we were down by four runs. Um, Chris Capuano was pitching and then um, the, the bases were loaded. They called, they brought me in and it, but it was nice because I was, I was feeling more excited and like, let's go instead of feeling nervous or any kind of scared. 
there was no fear really in that moment. It was just like, all right, let's go. And it was awesome. I remember thinking, I can't believe it's against the Giants. That was pretty cool. And you didn't get to face Barry Bonds in no. that game. So no. did you face him uh, at all in the big leagues? Because I know I that was his last year. I faced him one time uh, in San Francisco. And uh, <laughs> I remember, I th- so I threw a first pitch fastball. I was like, I'm going after him. We'll see what happens, you know. And uh, he he fouled it off to left field. And off the bat, I thought, oh, no, like he got it. But it was foul. I, I knew it was it was a, there was a possibility it was going to be foul. But the swing he had taken was harder than he normally swings. And he had lost his balance a little bit, which told me he was really he really wanted that pitch like, oh, he just missed it. And uh, so then I went curveball, curveball, ball, ball. And then I threw him a high fastball and he took it. He used his bat like a toothpick and just punched it in the left field for a single. I mean, on a line drive, it was like he just. He handled the bat and just boom, punched it in the left field with complete control of the bat. He got to first base. We had Joe Dillon playing first that day. And he came in and told me a story. He said, he said, yeah, I got to first base and said, these kids never learn. They, uh, they fall behind the count and then they try to beat you with throw as hard as they can and beat you. They never learn. (laughs) I thought that was a funny story. That's incredible. Um, How much of a baseball town is, Milwaukee because I know it's it's overlooked it's obviously not New York or Los Angeles or um, Philadelphia or any of those those cities but it is a baseball town from what I've heard to an extent but it seems like an area that nobody talks enough about it's a big big sports town in general Um, but baseball I mean other than the Packers I mean the baseball was extremely important to the fans and, and they came out to support it. You know, uh, when I was there, I was blown away by that actually. But after being there for so long, I realized, you know, the, with the weather they have and all that type of stuff in the winter, they really look to getting out in the summer and going to these games and supporting the team and, and sports in general, they're, they're fanatics and they're not afraid to say what they think either. Like it was really funny how they would just come up to you and say pretty much anything they wanted. Uh, but it was, uh, I, I liked it there. I did. And in 2008, that was a big year. The Brewers, uh, won 90 games and, you know, you're in the thick of a playoff race, you know, early July and CC Sabathia walks through the, through the door. And that was one of the big trades of I, I, that time that, you know, not just that year, but that entire time frame of, you know, five years, that was one of the biggest deadline deals. So he walks through the door in early July. Did that change the direction of the season? Because I know that was a huge acquisition that a lot of people kind of forget about. It was massive, massive. I mean, um, we were reeling from a starting pitching standpoint a little bit. I was wearing down. Um, it was the most innings I had pitched in a season. And I had ha- I've had an injury history like crazy. Um, so I was wearing down. Supon wasn't doing very well at the time. Um, it just, Gardo was still doing good, um, but we needed a guy like that. We needed somebody who we knew was going to come in and dominate. And, and boy, did he ever. I mean, it was like he took us on his back. And, and what was crazy about it was there was, not, he, there was no ego involved with it with him. It was like he, was, he would take what he did on the field and – allow that to speak for itself. And then outside of him pitching, he was just a great teammate. 
you know so there was beyond his pitching it was beyond all of that it was his demeanor his presence all that type of stuff he was very calm in the in the clubhouse so um we had some pretty good guys in there for that and he helped extremely i mean if it wasn't for him we wouldn't have gotten to the playoffs no doubt about it were you ever in the same hitting group as as sabathia and gallardo because i feel like that would just be embarrassing (laughs) i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure i was yeah yeah i mean i used to think i could hit but i didn't hit for power so uh you know no they would gardo could hit for sure and cc had power so yeah it was fun though that was always one of the funnest things it's sad that pitchers don't get to hit anymore but Whatever. Well, it's like nobody takes BP, you know, anymore either. I mean, I I always get to the, the park whenever I cover games and um, they the Giants send out a list of our uh, schedule for the day or whatever. And every time during the Giants BP, there's only like one group out there and it's like three really? guys that are hitting. And, you know, and it sucks that the fans, they, they open the gates after the home team hits. So the fans don't get to see their guys hit. And, uh, yeah. you know, BP used to be such a big event. But it's not, huh? Not anymore. Know. Yeah, I get they they still see the away team hit, but I always thought it was the coolest thing, you know, going out there with a glove and shagging fly balls on the bleachers or whatnot, but not as much anymore. Yeah. Well, how old are you? I'm 20. Oh man. <laughs> so you were eight. Yeah. You were eight years old back or 12 years ago. No, yeah, you were eight years old. Yeah. Jeez. Eight years old, but the the 2008 yeah. Brewers, man, they stick with me. <laughs> they stick yeah. with me a little bit. Um, yeah. And one guy that you played with and that you came up with, who I've always been really fascinated with, is Prince Fielder. And I always thought that he was such a larger-than-life player. You know, your prototypical monster power from the left side. Um, and he had some of his best seasons when when you played with him in Milwaukee and even at the minor league level. What did you What did you think about him and what kind of teammate was uh, was Prince? Prince was somebody who grew up with baseball, right? Like his dad was a big baseball player. Um, he grew up in that environment. Uh, winning was everything to him, which was awesome because at the big league level, that is all that matters. At the minor league level, you tend to focus on just doing doing well so that you can get to the next level. And then you get to the big leagues, and it's all about winning. And it's all about the city and and what you're representing. So he was really good about, keeping that as a focus and making sure that um, he always had energy. He always had passion for the game. Um, I do think that he had a problem with understanding people though, from a real standpoint, from a, from a human standpoint, um, people who didn't grow up the way he did. I always felt like he was a little disconnected with that. So um, good teammate from a baseball standpoint and all that stuff. But there were some things in my opinion that I didn't like when he hit the walk-off home run against the giants were you there in that that pile where he kind of did the, the whole thing and everybody yeah. fell to the ground were yeah. you there yeah i was in so it, you were yeah. playing the bullpen huh or in the, in no, the dugout? No, i was i was a starting pitcher so yeah i was in it i was at the plate yeah i didn't like it you didn't like it <laughs> oh that, well, that ain't me man i'm not into that stuff um i i did it because that's what everyone had said we were going to do and at the time that was really new um, and that came about, I think, because might've been McCutcheon or somebody with the pirates did some sort of like alley-oop at the plate or something like that. And so 
that had started becoming something new. The big thing about that, though, was it was supported by Craig Council, and Craig Council was uh, extremely highly respected. I mean, just a great guy um, all around, and um, he supported it. He, he, yeah, when they were talking about it, or hey, should we do something like this? It'd be fun, blah blah. He was part of it. And I remember him saying something about it, like you, you, you evolve or you die, you know. And so I've, I was always traditional, right? Like. I played the game a certain way and that was not the way you do it. So that was hard for me. I didn't like being a part of it. Um, as things have turned out to be, that's the way it is today, you know, and fans want to see that type of stuff. So that has changed dramatically, but yeah, I was in that. Every time I watched the video, I always go, God, how did they get Trevor Hoffman to do that? I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's absurd, but uh, I guess well, he went, he went with it too. Yeah. I mean, that's part of being a team, right? You know, uh, you, you can't just not be the only guy there or the only guy not doing it. And I would probably guess that that's not Trevor's position on things. Um, uh, fun teammate, man, like no other, probably top three teammates of all time. I mean, and you talk to anybody and they say that about him because he's that type of guy, meaning he knows how to have fun. He knows how to be serious. He knows how to motivate the players um he'll mentor you all that type of stuff but i would venture to say that that probably wasn't his style but he was there and part of it i mean that was that was us being a close team did you ever have a like a, a bullpen or starting pitching walk-up music that that kind of stuck with you throughout your career or were you someone that kind of always changed it i changed it uh coming up through the minor leagues i had uh a nate dog song <laughs> nobody does it better and I had that when I was in junior college, so I took it with me. And then when I got to the big leagues, it was, man, I, for a while there, I actually didn't pick one. Because back then, if you came up and requested a song right away, that was seen as like a prima donna type thing, you know, so they, you just don't say anything. So for a while there, I didn't have anything, but I bounced around. I would try some rocks and you're just going off of superstitious type stuff at that point. I, I was. Yeah, I can't really re remember too many of the songs other than like um, just bouncing around with what was popular and might have some energy in it. When I went to Cincinnati, though, I did stick with the same one and it was Jump Around by House of Pain. And that was strictly so. Yeah, and that, that was strictly so that the fans would have some. That was for the fans, not me, because when I'm out there, I don't hear the music. You know, I'm like in a zone, so I, did, I didn't hear it, but it was fun to know that. And I would have fans say that they enjoyed that. Like when they knew when I was coming to the game that that song would come on. And so they looked forward to that. So that was cool. Yeah, that, that is a good one. I think that was actually Brian Wilson's in San Francisco jump around. So definitely a cool, right. a cool choice. And speaking of Cincinnati from one first baseman, I know we touched on Prince a little bit to another, yeah. you play with Joey Votto too, who's uh, yeah. another all-star first baseman and he's still kicking it today. He was pretty good back then too, huh? still is a uh, very intelligent guy um man you talk about somebody who's like detail oriented it was him and he he a, a professional that dude's a professional man there's a reason why he's he's lasted as long as he has and um you know i i always had the utmost respect the other thing about him was he could be completely honest with you uh he would tell you hey i remember sitting down with them one time i'm like when I first got to Cincinnati, I was struggling in the beginning and 
I remember I'm looking at video, he comes in and he goes, what are you looking at? And so I'm like, ah, I'm just trying to see what, you know, what's, why this isn't, whatever it was I was talking about, why this pitch isn't working, whatever. And he's like, look, you're not going to beat anybody with your fastball. Now I, I liked hearing that because when I was in Milwaukee, I kept getting told to throw more fastballs and my fastball was getting crushed. Like it was stupid. They kept telling me you need to throw more fastballs. And I'm going, you guys are crazy. I'm looking at all the numbers here. You guys keep telling me to throw my fastball down. And then when I throw my fastball down, I'm getting hit at a 410 clip. Fastball's up, I'm at like 250. So at least that was better. It's still not great. So then I sat down with him. We're talking. He goes, look, you're not going to beat him with the velocity. You need to um, do this and do that. And so we, we were communicating about things and uh, strategizing a little bit. But he was completely honest with me. And I always appreciate that. You know, I'm not going to get my feelings hurt. You know, it's about us getting better and we're a team. So I, re I always respected Joey a ton and I still do to this day. And he's really turned out to uh, let us let his personality show, which is pretty funny. Yeah, he, he definitely seems like a, a funny guy. Uh, and then, of course, your last big league affiliation was with the Giants in 2018. And you pitched for the AAA team there, the, the Rivercats in Sacramento. So explain how cool that must have been maybe coming home and playing in front of a, a ton of family and friends. And I've spoken to people before that say coming home isn't really all what it's meant to be out, you know, what it's meant to be. They're like, oh, I struggled with it. It was annoying. Uh, but what was it like coming back to Sacramento there for that final hurrah and affiliated baseball? For me, it was uh, a blessing. Um, and there's a crazy story behind that. Uh, so I had been released by the Cubs after coming back from Tommy John. I went and played a couple months of independent ball. Things were dropping fast, right, for me. I was kind of getting humbled really quick. Going to the offseason, and I'm like, man, I'm not, I can't even get a team to come look at me. What's going on? Like, well, the place I was rehabbing or, or kind of still training at and trying to make sure I stayed healthy, uh, the bullpen coach for the Giants was there, Matt Herges. And he was getting his shoulder worked on or something. And he saw me and I guess I had pitched against him back in the day. And so he was, you know, we ended up talking and, and he was like, I would love to see you throw for us. And so I got the opportunity to come out and throw for them. Well, I just found out like a month before that, that my dad was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And so here I had an opportunity, the only opportunity I had to go throw for the Giants where I, I knew I'd probably go to AAA. You know, I'm not signing a big league deal here. Um, so I get to go to Sacramento. I get to spend time with my dad. Uh, stage four, you don't have much time. So I threw, I went and I threw a bullpen for them and it went great. I threw great. So they ended up signing me. I went to minor league camp and completely humbled by the whole thing. I didn't care. Um, I had an opportunity to play in Sacramento and I had an opportunity to still to go play for the team I grew up rooting for, which was always a dream. And so for me, I didn't end up getting called up to the big leagues that year, but I pitched well. And it's the funnest time I had in professional baseball, period. You, you know, felt like I had, you got to enjoy all of it. I did because I had the perspective of what the game, how small the game really was. Because there were so many times in my career where I, the game defined me as a person. So if I pitched well, people treated me good. If I pitched poorly, people treated me poorly. And so you start to identify with that. And you really have to break away from that. 
and I got better at that, that as I got older, but then playing in Sacramento and knowing that the most important thing for me was getting to be around my dad and my family and all these people um, supporting me. And um, my dad was able to go to the games. And I just remember normally I, w- I wasn't the type of person who, if you came to a game, I wasn't going to go and chat it up with you at the game. I would talk to you after the game, but during the game and all that type of stuff, I was just so like focused all the time. I didn't enjoy the game as much as I probably could have. And I really saw that when I went to Sacramento because I started having family and friends come to the game and I didn't care. I was in the bullpen and I would just talk to them and I was, I was enjoying the moment. I was enjoying all everything about it. I had three children at the time. So they would come down and it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And it was just that perspective of knowing that this isn't the end all be all. And yet at the same time, that allowed me to have the most fun I had had in so long playing the game. So I really enjoyed it, man. And I loved my time there. I loved the coaches. I loved the whole organization. Um, that was, I was just really happy to have had that opportunity. That's really awesome. And I think it gives a good display that players are not robots as much as we might think them, as much as fans may think them as robots, they're also human beings. So that's a really awesome story. And, uh, you know, you've, you've been out of baseball for a little bit now. Uh, I know you've been working with some uh, kids as kind of a, maybe a pitching coach from time to time. Uh, I read somewhere that you've kind of studied the rap Soto and the hit track. Uh, the game's kind of moved in that direction. Uh, why do you feel the need to kind of adapt? I guess, you know, going based off what Craig Council said, adapt or die, when maybe other guys, you know, of, from your, your era uh, kind of watch the game and, and complain about the evolution of the new technology? Um, because I'm all about always wanting to get better. So if there is a way, like when I was playing, I was constantly researching. I was always trying to find a way to improve, um, even to a detriment, um, you know, at some point, but it's just because I'm curious to a certain extent. And I I like technology and I believe in technology, but at the same time, um, there's a balance to the whole thing. Uh, more than anything, I'm learning it now so that I can evolve or else I will die. I won't get an opportunity to go coach professionally because if you, if you tell a team that you don't believe in that, you don't get the, you don't get a shot. doesn't matter your experience. doesn't matter how good a coach you can be. It doesn't matter. If you say that you don't believe in that stuff, there are too many people in the organization who control things and they don't want to hear that. So multiple reasons. So I believe in it. I also believe that there's a place and a time and there's also the ability of a coach should be able to take that information and relay it to the pitcher in the way that they can turn it into their own information so they can then translate it. Everybody speaks a different language. I had a pitching coach one time say being a pitching coach is like working for the United Nations. You have to speak all these different languages to all these different players because nobody speaks the same language. And when you're talking about numbers, sometimes people think of it as such a solid thing. It's like this, it's, there's one way of doing it. The numbers say this, the numbers say that, and that's still not the case. Those numbers are still interpreted by each individual differently. So the pitching coach needs to take that information. Okay. What kind of, um, how does Manny learn best? Is he a visual guy? Is he a feel guy? Is he a verbal guy? Like, 
what works best with him. And I have to think about that stuff and I have to take that information and see how can I, how can we develop a strategy that's going to make him better? Also, what information do we need to make sure we don't use? Because sometimes you can give a player information that's not going to help them. It can actually hinder them. It's if it's information you have, but it's not going to improve the player. So um, I believe we can use the technology in certain ways. And I also believe it can be misused in certain ways. Um, I have, I, I need to go out there and experience and, and hone in my own, my own thoughts on this stuff outside of just what I've experienced at a baseball facility here, you know, so I still have a lot to learn. I enjoy learning. Life gets boring when it's, when you have, when you feel like there's nothing else to learn and you feel like, you know, everything, which I've never felt before. Anyway, I feel like life would be boring. So why not? Why not always stay open to what's new? You're hired. (laughs) Is that on the horizon for you, though? Coaching, maybe working in a front office? Is that something that you see maybe in your near future? I hope so. Um, You know, I'm actually I'm trying. I'm going to see if I can get hired on by the Giants this year. Send my resume to them. And yeah, you you have to send a resume, believe it or not. It's funny. Um, and, uh, they want you to take classes. They want you to know some of this stuff. Uh, so I did take, I took a general managing class and player development class, um, from a sports management worldwide. I did that in 2020 during the, um, pandemic just so I can kind of further develop. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely would like to see if, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, It, it it validates all the struggles that you went through when you can then share that with somebody else and help somebody else. It makes it feel like it was all worth it, regardless of how it turned out for you, if you can share the information. And it, it'll, it would allow me to know that I did learn, you know? Um, and, and so that's the next part of it for me. Well, yeah, best of luck to you, man. That, that's pretty awesome. Before we go, I do have one more thing for you. Uh, this is one thing that I've done uh, one time before with uh, Adam Rosales, former major league infielder. You, you might know him as the guy that sprints around the bases. Um, we played a game called, uh, I showed him three players that he played in the minor leagues with, and he had to tell me who they are. So I have three pictures of three guys that you played. And these aren't just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill you with guys that you you know played five games with i'm not that type of person manny so i'm going to give you someone you have to name uh who they are okay so here we go i'm going to show you the 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 first picture who is this canard bibbs there you go what do you remember about him that's right hard-working guy he little guy but he was fast actually i remember one time he, he swung at a pitch he swung at a pitch and the umpire called it a ball and everybody's looking around like what he didn't see him swing. Like, are you kidding me? So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. One for one. Okay. Doing, doing pretty well so far. You're feeling good about this. Let's see. Okay. This is number two left-handed pitcher. Who is this? Oh, Jeff Hausman. Jeff Hausman. What do you remember about Jeff? He's a, he's a jokes. He's a joker, man. Uh, he had some, he had a couple really good years. Uh, he really, uh, man, for a minute there, I thought he was going to just blow up. Uh, he, in the early on, he struggled with some things and it was like, he figured something out and he really 
honed in on getting lefties out and um you know for a minute there it looked like he was actually gonna get up to the big leagues and do some stuff i think he might have got injured okay there you go two for two just so you know rosales was one for three and the only reason he got the first one was because it was his double play partner in the minor leagues so he had to know who that was it was a yeah, it was an interesting uh, thing for him. All right, here's the final one. This is of recent vintage. We talked about the Sacramento tenure. This is a guy you played with in Sacramento. Who is this? That is, uh, dude, what is it? <laughs> Shaw. There you go. Chris Shaw. Chris first Shaw. baseman left. Chris Shaw, the first major leaguer that I've ever had in the history of RizzoCast come on the show. So. Oh, really? Yeah, great guy. Had 24 home runs in 2018 when you played with him. Uh, don't know where he is now. Probably should catch up, but um, a lot yeah, of power dude. out of Boston College. A lot of power. Good dude, man. Worked hard. He he was another one of those guys who just kind of represented the, the type of um, character the players in the Giants organization had. And I want to I will say that again. When I was with the Giants, the thing that stood out the most to me was the character of players that they had there. Um, it was almost like growing coming up. I always saw I always saw the Cardinals as an organization that probably had they really looked at character of people, and I had heard some rumblings that the Giants were the same way. But when I went and played for the Giants, I really liked the character of the players, and and he was one of them. Yeah, there's definitely the uh, highly publicized Cardinal way, and then some other organizations uh, do it a little bit more silenter with uh, some good not just player development, but also people development as well. Uh, Manny, this was awesome. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and, and talking and uh, definitely best of luck to you moving forward. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that you get that uh, coaching gig in the near future, but I uh, appreciate you coming on. Hey, thanks for having me and uh, credit to you for, um, you know, reaching out to people and, and, and creating what you're doing. I'm, you're working hard for it and congrats to you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And anytime you're in San Francisco and you're at a game, just tap in and then uh, we'll, I'll say hello. So, all right. All right. Sounds well, good. thanks for having me. You guys could, uh, of course, follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast, do all that fun stuff. Um, and uh, Manny, are you on Twitter? Are you active on Twitter? I am. I don't do much of it, man. I need, I've always said I need to do more, but um, yeah, uh, I should. Well, I see your, your, yeah, your handle here at Manny para 26. So go follow him for when he does resurrect his Twitter life. Um, <laughs> and, uh, he'll get that in gear there. All right. Thank you guys for listening and have a good day.